0: Hello everybody and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast episode number 234. Today's big Bible question is, why do Christians keep on sinning? Why do I keep on sinning? Well, happy Monday, friends. May the Lord shine his light and grace on you this week and protect you and keep you as you navigate another week in pandemic city. Our Bible readings today include 1 Samuel 9, Jeremiah 46, Psalms 22, and Romans 7, which Romans 7 kind of begins a trio of chapters, Romans 7, 8, and 9, which may be the three most controversial chapters in the Bible, or at least pretty close, being as how they strongly address the issue of predestination. Well, predestination is not our focus today, but our big Bible question does come from Romans 7, where Paul, the great apostle, famously declares himself a wretched man who still mightily struggles with sin. Now, this passage has confused many, and it's caused a lot of its own controversy over the years. How could the mighty and godly apostle Paul seemingly struggle with sin so much? Now, some have concluded that the end of Romans is speaking of Paul's pre-salvation state, but that really can't be accurate because... Paul there is speaking in the present tense. Some have concluded that Paul was speaking with humble hyperbole, that he really wasn't actually that bad of a sinner like he was talking about. He was just being real humble about it. Well, I don't accept that either. Perhaps the people that kind of think that have just a lot more saintly of a disposition than I do. But I honestly believe that what Paul is saying here should be taken at face value that he is indeed lamenting his sin. And I believe that first because there's really no clue of hyperbole or exaggeration in the passage, but also because Paul's experience is my own. Sin and temptation do not go away at salvation, but they continue to vex the Christian throughout his life. But there's a different way to battle and a different power to battle with. Ultimately, though, I too am a wretched man, and I'm not saying that with the least amount of humility. In fact, if I said anything other than that, I would be a big liar, worse than I already am. So why do Christians keep sinning considering that Jesus is factually such a wonderful Savior? Well, let's ask our old friend Tim Keller. And Keller says this, even in the very best of people, there's a core of evil, a capacity for doing terrible things way beyond what you believe it to be, far greater, far worse than you ever imagined. It's hidden from you, but sometimes there are certain situations that act as a potion, a stress, temptation, marriage. These things can bring it out. The real wickedness, the real capacity for evil, that incredible hideousness, the enormous, almost endless capacity for self-centeredness, self-absorption, self-will, and self-indulgence comes out, and then you're dead. Do you believe the very best person is capable of such awfulness? Well, Paul seemed to think that. Keller continues, Sufian Stevens, an indie rock artist some of you know, has a song called John Wayne Gacy Jr., and it's a song about the notorious serial killer John Wayne Gacy who killed 30 people and hid them under the floorboards of his house. Sufian sings about this serial killer, and the last two lines of the song are absolutely astounding. In fact, even the music critic at the New York Magazine Village Voice was blown away. At the very, very end, he's singing about this serial killer. How awful. What a terrible person. An incredibly awful serial killer. And the very last two lines go like this. And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. And basically what Stevens is saying is, look Under the floorboards of my life, and you will see the capacity in me to do terrible things. Now, Keller says, Do you really believe that? Do you believe what Sufian Stevens is saying about himself? Do you believe what Paul is saying about himself? That you and I have a capacity for hideousness and selfishness and evil way beyond what we really think we're capable of. St. Augustine, in his famous book, The Confessions, reflects on an incident in his youth. In his youth, at one point, he broke into a particular private orchard and stole some pears off a tree. Later on, he reflected about that and he said, asked himself, why did I steal the pears? A, I wasn't hungry and B, even if I was hungry, I didn't like the pears. And it turns out after Augustine stole the pears, he threw them to pigs. He didn't even like the pears, but he went and stole the pears. And his answer to why he did that is he stole the pears because somebody told him they were forbidden. In other words, someone said to him, Thou shalt not take those pears. And he says, Until someone said, Thou shalt not, I had no interest in the pears. But once they said, Don't take the pears, I wanted them. There's something about the heart, says Keller, deep inside the heart. There's an aspect of our hideousness, of our self-centeredness, of that self-absorption that says, Nobody tells me how to live. There are a lot of people whose lives that is right on the surface of, because There are a lot of people walking around talking like that all the time. They say, nobody tells me how to live my life. The rest of us, or a lot of us, are very nice. But deep inside of you, you Mr. and Mrs. Jekylls, is a part of our hearts that absolutely hates being told how to live. That's part of what's wrong with us. And when you bring the moral law to bear on a child, or you bring the moral law to bear on people... Instead of it shriveling up that aspect of our beings where we hate to be told what to do, it actually aggravates us and people end up doing things because they're forbidden. Well, that's part of the equation on why you and I are such sinners friends. Because the law, it's almost as if it entices that sin nature in us just because it's forbidden to want to do it. Well, that's not the whole story but that's a beginning. Let's go read Romans chapter 7, and then we're going to come back and talk about this a little bit more with our friend John Piper. Romans chapter 7, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, If she's married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. Then if she is married to another man, she's not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, Do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Well, absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good with me, but there is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I don't want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me, for in my inner self I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. So, how do we live with this lingering sin, given that we've been washed by Jesus and saved by him? Well, John Piper has some thoughts on that to share us. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? That, says Piper, is the real cry of a Christian saint. Not because we are not redeemed and saved, but because the redemption Christ brought for us comes to us in stages. First, life in the Spirit and justification and progressive sanctification. Then, at the resurrection, the redemption of the body. Till then, it is a body of death and we groan. We groan because of its diseases, and we groan because of its treasonous complicity with sin. Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am who will set me free from this body of death, is a Christian cry, says Piper. How should we then answer the counter-argument that Romans eight one through 2 seems to signal that in Christ the failures of Romans 7 are left behind? Paul begins Romans 8 with these words, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Many commentators, says Piper, take this to mean that the experience of Romans 7 is past and done with. Note especially the term law of sin and death in Romans 8 verse 2 and compare it to Romans 7 22 through 23, where Paul says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. There you see the term law of sin. It is a principle or power or rule of sin working through the body, just as we have seen, making the body a body of death and taking Paul captive so that he does not do, so that he does what he doesn't want to do. But in Romans 8, 2, it says, now the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin. So those on the other side of this debate say, you see, Romans 7 is describing the experience of a person before they are in Christ, before they are Christian. Before you are a Christian and have the Holy Spirit, the law of sin takes you captive. And after you become a Christian and have the Holy Spirit, you are free from the law of sin. But is it that simple, says Piper? Does Romans 8, 2 have to mean that that when you become a Christian, This principle or rule or authority of sin never gets the upper hand? Piper says, I've tried to show over several sermons that this is not what Paul teaches. In fact, he teaches just the opposite. Sin does threaten the Christian all the time to get the upper hand in the Christian life, and we must fight against it. Verse 13 of chapter 8 says, We must put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 6.13 says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. The battle is real, says Piper. Temporary defeat is possible. So what does the freedom of Romans 8.2 mean then when it says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin? I think it means exactly what Romans 6.14 means when it says, Sin shall not be the master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Virtually nobody takes that to mean that at the moment you are justified, you become sinlessly perfect. Most people agree that it means the decisive final power of sin to dominate and destroy a Christian is broken. You enter a new freedom. With the power of the Spirit, you can defeat sin. So when Paul says in Romans 7.23 that the law of sin takes him captive, and then he says in Romans eight two that the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set him free from the law of sin, I think he means that the defeat in captivity of Romans 7:23 is not his chief or final condition the spirit has set him free from the law of sin as the decisive final power to defeat and destroy him the spirit often gives him the victory and increasingly gives him in the victory and in the end will give him the final victory and us too and inc- and he cannot be destroyed by the law of sin because the back of the enemy has been broken His head has been severed from his body. We fight the enemy as we fight a defeated foe. And in Christ Jesus, who has brought the victory, we will win. So, Christian, do you struggle with sin? Well, join the club. We all do. The Apostle Paul did. And though sin may seemingly have the upper hand from time to time, as we will keep reading in Romans 8, the decisive and final victory belongs to Christ. And sin will lose, and the enemy will lose. So look to Jesus, my friends, and trust him, and take hold of the victory that is present in the power of the Holy Spirit. Will you always sin? Well, I don't. I mean, will you always win the battle? I don't know that you will, because as John Piper has said, we live in a treasonous body. It's treasonous because it's decaying, and it's prone to sickness, disease, and injury. But it's also treasonous in that it is sinful and prone to sin, and our flesh desires to rebel against the law of God. But there's the life of the Spirit that's in us now because we are believers, and that means we can battle, and that means ultimately we will win, not by our own power or our own, our own self-discipline, but by the power of the Spirit. So if you are weary of the battle right now, know that decisive and ultimate victory is coming through Christ, and even temporary victories are here now through the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's continue reading in the Word. First Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeor, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, son of a Benjaminite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. One day the donkeys of Saul's father Kish wandered off, and Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. Saul and his servant went through the hill country of Ephraim and then through the region of Shalishah, but they didn't find them. They went through the region of Shalom and nothing. Then they went through the Benjaminite region, but still didn't find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come on, let's go back, or my father will stop worrying about the darkies and start worrying about us. Look, the servant said, there's a man of God in this city who is highly respected. Everything he says is sure to come true. Let's go there now. Maybe he'll tell us which way we should go. Suppose we do go, Saul said to his servant. What do we take, the man? The food from our packs is gone, and there's no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here, I have a little silver. I'll give it to the man of God, and he'll tell us which way we should go. Formerly in Israel, a man who was going to inquire of God would say, Come, let's go to the seer. For the prophet of today was formerly called the seer. Good, Paul replied to his servant. Come on, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was, and they were climbing the hill to the city. They found some young women coming out to draw water and asked, Is the seer here? And the woman answered, Yes, he is ahead of you. Hurry, he just now entered the city because there is a sacrifice for the people at the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes to the high place to eat. The people won't eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. After that, the guests can eat. Go up immediately. You can find him now. So they went up towards the city. Saul and his servant were entering the city when they saw Samuel coming toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, At this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines, because I have seen the affliction of my people, for their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man I told you about, he will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the city gate and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel answered. Go up ahead of me to the high place and eat with me today. When I send you off in the morning, I'll tell you everything that's in your heart. As for the donkeys that wandered away from you three days ago, don't worry about them because they've been found And who does all of Israel desire but you and your father's family? Saul responded, Am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest of Israel's tribes and isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjaminite tribe? So why have you said something like this to me? Samuel took Saul and his servant, brought them to the banquet hall and gave them a place at the head of the thirty or so men who had been invited. Then Samuel said to the cook, Get the portion of meat that I gave you and told you to set aside. The cook picked up the thigh and what was attached to it and set it before Saul. Then Samuel said, Notice that the reserved place is set before you. Eat it, because it was saved for you for this solemn event. At the time I said, I've invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Afterward they went down from the high place to the city, and Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. They got up early, and just before dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get up, and I will send you on your way. Saul got up, and both he and Samuel went outside. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us, but you stay for a while, and I will reveal the word of God to you. So the servant went on. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord that came to the prophet Jeremiah about the nations about Egypt and the army of Pharaoh Necho, Egypt's king, which was defeated at Carchemish on the Euphrates River by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in the fourth year of Judah's king Jehoiakim son of Josiah. Deploy small shields and large. Approach for battle. Harness the horses. Mount the steeds. Take your positions with helmets on. Polish the lances. Put on armor. Why have I seen this? They are terrified. They are retreating. Their warriors are crushed. They flee headlong. They never look back. Terror is on every side. This is the Lord's declaration. The swift cannot flee, and the warrior cannot escape. In the north, by the bank of the Euphrates River, they stumble and fall. Who is this rising like the Nile, with waters that churn like rivers? Egypt rises like the Nile, and its waters churn like rivers. He boasts, I will go up, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities with their residents. Rise up, you cavalry, race furiously, you chariots. Let the warriors march out, cush and put. Who are able to handle shields and the men of Lud who are able to handle and string the bow? That day belongs to the Lord, the God of armies, a day of vengeance to avenge himself against his adversaries. The sword will devour and be satisfied. It will drink its fill of their blood because it will be a sacrifice to the Lord, the God of armies. In the northern land by the Euphrates River, go up to Gilead and get balm. Virgin daughter Egypt, you have multiplied remedies in vain. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your dishonor and your cries fill the earth because warrior stumbles against warrior and together both of them have fallen. This is the word of the Lord spoken to the prophet Jeremiah about the coming of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to defeat the land of Egypt. Announce it in Egypt and proclaim it in Migdal. Proclaim it in Memphis and in Tapens. Say, take positions, prepare yourself for the sword devours all around you. Why have your strong ones been swept away? Each has not stood, for the Lord has thrust him down. He continues to stumble, indeed, each falls over the other. They say, get up, let's return to our people and to our native land, away from the oppressor's sword. There they will cry out, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was all noise. He let the opportune moment pass. As I live, this is the king's declaration. The Lord of armies is his name. The king of Babylon will come like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea. Get your bags ready for exile, inhabitor of daughter Egypt, for Memphis will become a desolation, uninhabited ruins. Egypt is a beautiful young cow, but a horsefly from the north is coming against her. Even her mercenaries among her are like stall-fed calves. They too will turn back, together they will flee. They will not take their stand, for the day of their calamity is coming on them. The time of their punishment. Egypt will hiss like a slithering snake, for the enemy will come with an army. With axes they will come against her, like those who cut trees. They will cut down her forest. This is the Lord's declaration, though it is dense, for they are more numerous than locusts. They cannot be counted. Daughter Egypt will be put to shame, handed over to a northern people. The Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says, I am about to punish Ammon, God of Thebes, along with Pharaoh, Egypt, her gods, and her kings, Pharaoh and those trusting in him. I will hand them over to those who intend to take their lives, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his officers. But after this, Egypt will be inhabited again, as in ancient times. This is the Lord's declaration. But you, my servant Jacob, do not be afraid, and do not be discouraged, Israel, for without fail I will save you from far away and your descendants from the land of their captivity. Jacob will return and have calm and quiet, with no one to frighten him. And you, my servant Jacob, do not be afraid. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will be with you. I will bring destruction on all the nations where I have banished you, but I will not bring destruction on you. I will discipline you with justice, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. Psalm, chapter 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near. And there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evil doers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, not only my only life, from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear God, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember. And turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. Well, yes, Lord, let us be the generation to declare your wonders and your sacrifice on the cross and the fact that you were forsaken instead of us. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel we just heard in Psalms 22. Good day, friends, and Godspeed.